What are we doing? Let me frame this series saying this. In my conversations with you, what I often hear as it pertains to sharing your faith. So our mission is to make Jesus known. You can't just make Jesus known by raking your neighbor's leaves and then hoping, I wonder if he thinks his sin is bad. Like you just would not go there. We, we make Jesus known with words. And so often what I hear from you is not, hey, James, I'm having trouble with what do I share as the gospel. What I often hear is, James, I can't even get to Jesus because the elephant in the room is, quote, what or we as Christians think about issues like gender, issues like same-sex relationships, sexuality, exclusivity, suffering. I don't even know what to say. Moreover, this is what I hear from us as the church. I'm not even 100% sure uh, what I believe on these issues. Christians seem to be divided. I got another Christian in my office place where I work who says something totally different and I kind of feel stuck and I don't even know what would be helpful. Like, what do I say? What do we believe on some of these issues? Deep down, James, I wanna honor God. I love people, but I get stuck. So these are the elephants. And, and by the way, the elephants, they're getting bigger. They're, they're, they, the landmines that we stand on on these issues are getting more dangerous. And so what do I do? That's why we're doing this series, okay? Biblically, here's what I wanna show you. Uh, Peter says this, but in your hearts, so this is all for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad you're here. Would love to just give you a window into what it's like to live and think like a Christian. But here's to followers of Jesus. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as most important, as, as who you love most, who you worship most. Always being prepared to make, here's how the ESV translates this word, defense. NIV says, give an answer. Another uh, version says, explain. Always be prepared to give an answer or explain to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So the whole premise of this series is for us, the short church, to be equipped. So here's what I would like you to do. I'd like you to buy a notebook. I'd like you to open a new notes. I'd like you to think, I wanna know these language. My goal in this series is that you know how to navigate the elephants in the room where you go. I don't, wanna, I don't just wanna just teach. Like the, we're the church, we're to take truth, God's truth out and navigate and love and speak with love and truth and respect what we believe on these things. So I, this is really on you. Like, you will, you will, if you really want to get a lot out of this series, think, I'm going to share this talk next week. What should I write down? Okay. Um, so let me say a few things. Number one, we have a whole resource page on the website on the, on the sermon. When you click on the sermon title or image, you can go there. We'll have lots of books, articles, things you can read on these different topics. Uh, these first two weeks are going to be very intentional in building a foundation to all of the other weeks. So these are the most important weeks, the first three. I would, I would argue to understand what I'm gonna say in the rest. Um, let me pray. And then we'll get into the first topic about sexuality and sex. You're gonna hear that word the whole morning. So just, you know, shake a bit. Be like, this 
is an interesting church. Okay, let me pray. Oh, Father, we, we just come to you because we know that by our own creation, you designed everything we're gonna talk about. You made it, you have intention with it. And you have purposes for us today. And I, I just wanna pray Holy Spirit that you would, with our spirits, um, I don't know, I can see this, but move us towards your spirit. I pray that we would feel what you feel. We would love sex's design and sexuality in the way of Jesus, the way our souls were meant to love the Bible. I just, I pray that we would come out of this morning with a refreshed vision for something you made us love more by your spirit. And I just, I pray God for those who have been deeply impacted and affected as we all have brokenness in our sexuality, brokenness in our desires, and many of us have had brokenness of sexual sin committed against us. And this might till up some things. And I just, I wanna pray you would be there, be a comforter, give me wisdom. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, if there's, if there's any manifestations of the Spirit you wanna see, We'd be sensitive to that. And I just, I pray you'd help me, Holy Spirit, with the gift of teaching. I just teach this really well. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let me begin by reading the two texts that we'll, we will anchor in most of what will be shared today. So this is Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount talking about sexuality in the kingdom of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. 1 Corinthians 6 Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food, he's quoting from a quote of the day, by the way. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify, worship God in your body. 
Okay, so here's what Jesus, Paul, the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, understood. They understood that there is so much power in human sexuality, in sex, in its desires. You, you can even see it in this text that it has, compared to all the other sins out there, a very disproportionate power in shaping who we are. That just has to be, we just got to get that. Um, Paul says here, when he says, we sin sexually against our bodies, one commentator points out this phrase literally means to distort our personality or ourselves. Paul knows over the course of time when one gives themselves to sex outside of God's good intention, they are affected by it, they become bent towards it, they are broken in it. In some sense, this is really key, it doesn't just touch our behavior, what we do, it deeply shapes who we are, our formation. That's the key. So let me say it this way. We're talking about sex and sexuality in the way of Jesus. Every passage on sexuality understands its power, its power formation, and gives us guards to save us from deformation. Write that down. You need to know that language. Every passage that speaks to sexuality and its goodness that prohibits speaks to our deformation. Here's what the Bible's clear about. Sex used outside of God's vision, has enough combative force, it will destroy your conscience, it will destroy your brain, your vows, your family, your commitment to godliness, almost anything in its path. It, it, it's destroying hearts, it's producing profound shame. Today, short church, this is not just outside the church, though not identical to the world, the statistics within the church have the similar rates as pornography use, premarital sex, and divorce. Mary uh, Eberstart, in her, I can't even remember say her name right, in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, says this, the sexual revolution was, and this will be on the screen, the, di the let me read it here. You read it up there, because she's smarter than me. Okay, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of the sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults, okay? Anything goes, it's more of like how you feel. If you feel hungry, it's like an appetite. You go for it, anything goes, okay? Of all the revolutions in the 20th century, we need to acknowledge here the church has lost on this one. If the goal of a revolution is to overthrow a government, it looks like this one has won. It's changing the way communities date. It's changing the way people view gender. It's changing tremendous amount of, I mean, it's producing, generating tremendous amount of confusion. And look right at me. It's eating followers of Jesus alive. As Paul says, it does as it always has. Okay, I remember uh, my first exposure to pornography happened when I was 12. We were heading up uh, up north in Ontario to go visit my some friends from our church. They had a cabin, and we pulled into a gas station, and you know we went to get snacks and gas. And I turned to the right. There was a magazine, uh, you know, stand, and I saw this beautiful woman. I was like, she is beautiful. So I grab grabbed the magazine down, and I just I flipped it open, and I was like, what do we have here? <laughs> I'd never seen a naked woman. Um, I. I all I can describe is there was a sexual awakening. There was this awareness of human sexuality. 
it was so powerful. I remember being so scared. I remember, I remember feeling happy, really happy. And I remember feeling like in shock. I was, I'd never seen that. And, I, and I, I folded it up and put it away. And I think it was about a few months and years later that dial-up came out. Remember dial-up? Remember that? Some of you. And um, I remember just someone said, you can just type in these words and things show up. And I did, and, and I was hooked. And that battle has been the most painful, agonizing struggle of my life. Nothing plagues my heart more. Not, there's nothing I fight more regularly or hate in me even more than lust. In, in an article published last week in The Guardian, a complete secular article, warning parents to talk about pornography, the writer points out that this generation, which has grown up with porn on their phones, views it like nothing like we did. Rather, they view it as something more natural, more entertaining. Almost everyone is looking at porn. One called it the wallpaper of our world. The average person who, who views this looks at porn five to six hours a week. Quoting from the interview, Jake19 says, it's normal, normal, echoing many of the boys he spoke to. Quote, if one of my friends hadn't seen it, I'd consider that weird. Okay, for Jason, he's a 17-year-old. Porn is a a comforting routine, something functional that he wakes up with and winds down to at the end of the day. It's a stress relief and quote, it's less work than girls. Uh, Megan 15 has visited porn sites a few times because she's heard about her friends giving oral sex and thought, you know, it sounds like I'd better learn how to do this. You don't wanna get it wrong. Alicia 17 talks about how porn warps things. Quote, boys like to spice it up because ordinary sex is considered boring. When, when Rihanna, 21, looks back on her teenage sexual relationship, she recalls being asked to replicate scenes her boyfriends had seen on porn. Quote, it wasn't about what I wanted. It was as if you were some prototype female they got to act out their favorite videos with. In a recent survey of 16 to 18 year olds, nearly every participant reported learning how to have sex by watching pornography. So please, go to that Sunday school class we're holding. On pornography, it's September 22nd, both in the morning and the evening. But if I have you just for a little bit, there's a lot of neurology and understanding about the neuroplasticity, the way that our brains over the course of time can change and adapt based on what we think and what we do. Look right at me, what I'm talking about is deformation. So, so this is what happens, okay? Biologically, neurologically. When researchers compared brain scans between porn users and non-porn users, they found that the more porn the person has used, the less his reward center is activated when porn images were flashed on a screen. And as a result, a dopamine addiction is required that more hardcore material is, is required to produce the same sexual stimulation. And, and quote, the meddling and, and reduction with our dopamine parts of our brain, which oversees things like planning, prioritizing our impulses, results, and here it is, in the fact that we have reduced empathy and understanding for other people. It literally rewires and changes the brain in your empathy center. So when something sick or disturbing pops up, you click on it because the stuff you 
are used to no longer works, the brain, listen, it stores the connection. So your new standard is that storage. Biologists say that neurons that fire together wire together. It alters what we want in sexual taste. Those viewing pornography regularly have higher levels of willingness to commit rape, sexual callousness, sexual aggressive behavior compared to the brain scans of those who do not use pornography. I am not joking when I say, and I've been a pastor for 15 years, I look young, but 15 years is a long time to be in ministry. Nine out of every 10 marriage counseling, really hard situations, nine out of 10 pornography is in the picture somewhere. But we know it's not just pornography, okay? We're gonna speak to sexuality formation and around gender and same-sex relationships in the weeks to come. So here's some real heart-wrenching, true explanations from Christians. These are Christians on issues of sex and sexuality. Aaron, a guy, thought this way, I'm married and sex is my right, no holds bar. He felt that his wife, Ginger, should be ready anytime he requested sex and that she should do whatever it was that brought him pleasure. If he came home in the middle of the day and was ready, then it was her responsibility to be willing. But Ginger felt like an object a plaything for Aaron's pleasure. She felt put upon and demanded of. Sex was for her increasingly less than an act of mutual love. It had become a daily obligation, one she frequently dreaded. She tried to get Aaron to talk with her about their sexual life, but he told her he thought everything was cool. She tried to share her feelings with him, but he didn't seem to listen. She had tried refusing his advantages, advances at points, but he only got angry and accused her of being selfish. Aaron was demanding what Ginger dreaded, and she did not know what to do. Mandy was in college, and she loved every minute of the experience. For the first time in her life, she felt independent and attractive. She loved the attention she was getting from the guys in her dorm, in her classes. Mandy loved the fact that she didn't feel awkward anymore. She liked the way her body had developed. And she liked the fact that her looks got her a lot of male attention. She felt alive, she felt appreciated. And although she was uncomfortable with some of the things her romantic partners wanted her to do, she loved that she was so attractive that guys were always after her in ways that Mandy was not conscious of. She dressed not so much to cover or adorn her body as to expose and draw attention to it. Heather had no sexual attraction to her husband whatsoever. Okay, since they had gotten married, he had put on about 35 pounds. That athletic body of the man she'd married had given way to this pudgy guy who spent most of his time watching the sports. He no longer had the energy to play. When Heather saw his body, she was turned off. When they attempted to have sex, all she could think of was the size of his belly. She could occasionally succumb to his advances, but it was all she could do to fake her way through and make sure he was satisfied enough to leave her alone for a few days. Heather fantasized about being married to a fit and handsome man. She dreamed about having sex and feeling muscles rather than flab. She was unhappy and she felt trapped. It, it, it made her angry. She couldn't imagine living the rest of her life this way. She had sexual desires that needed to be satisfied, but not by him. There was not a self-conscious point in time decision, but Heather began to plan her escape. She thought about what she would say to her husband and how he would break the news to her family. She wondered how the kids would take it, how the battle would go. She wanted to feel attractive again. She wanted to be attracted to someone. She wanted sex where she could really give herself rather than just pretend. And Heather just couldn't imagine that this was how God wanted her to live. 
She didn't know how, and she hadn't yet considered when, but she knew that somehow, some way, she was getting out. So what's happening in all of these cases? And we haven't even scratched the issues of sexual abuse and the brokenness of that. What's happening is deformation that comes when sex has been made into something it wasn't designed for, which leads to all kinds of dissatisfaction and deep pain. Sex is not a thing unto itself that can exist by itself. Sex by design is meant to be connected. It it is meant to be tied to and understood in relationship to the big things of God and the consequential proportions of the effects that follow. Sure, what's clear of every text in the Bible is this. If we allow our hearts to be ruled by sex or sexual pleasure or sexual power or whatever other thing sex gets us, we will not only misuse this good gift of God, but look right at me. We will, we will, be, we will end up being controlled by it. Sexual distortion and addiction, as one writes, exists not because sex itself is bad. Let me say that again. Sexual distortion and addiction (coughs) exists not because sex itself is bad, but because we have put it in a place God never intended it. We don't have sexuality or sex in the way of Jesus. This is why the warnings of the Bible around sex follow the Bible's teaching of the goodness of sex. It's something to protect. It's something so powerful. It's so fragile. His commands and the Bible's designs are not something to put in your life or in your teenager's life to to place restriction from freedom. No, it's something meant to bring us into a truer experience of God's design for it and what it was meant to point to. So the question we need to ask is, what is God's vision for human sexuality? How do we have a vision of sexuality in the way of Jesus? The answer is we go to the one who's invented it. We go to the Bible. So this is your starting point. Every Christian, you have a starting point. And I want to, okay, look, there's, there's many books that will link on this, but okay, if you're a teenager in here, okay, or preteens, all, I'm looking at you guys. I'm, just, I'm literally pointing at two of you, and then there's some back here. Your parents will give you $10 cash, okay? If you can, if you can explain these four points, okay, cash, straight up $10 cash. So here's four, four, there's so much out there, so that's why we're linking a lot of material. But I'm going to give you four answers to sexuality in the way of Jesus. What I found in my study for you at this particular time and this whole topic, four things I think need to be said from the pulpit. Number one, this is the most important one. So if you're married, this is one that you want to get notes ready. If you're not yet married and you're single, you want to be able to explain this to the person you're dating or maybe dating. And if you're a teenager, you got to get 10 bucks. So you got to get ready for this. Okay. (laughs) Number one, sexuality in the way of Jesus. This is the biggest one points to 
our longing and final communion with God. That sentence, go back, or you can see it at the top. The second point is there. Sexuality in the way of Jesus points us to our longing and final communion with God. I need you to pay so much attention here because it's going to get really wordy and it's massively helpful. The Bible, which is your starting point, okay? Say, that's my starting point. Everyone say that. Say, that, that's my starting point. The Bible always has consistent talk around sex with a husband and a wife and is always a picture of our relationship with God. Marriage is always a picture of our relationship with God. Ephesians 5, Paul even says, you can't understand marriage without understanding how it refers to Christ and the church. So right now we're thinking sex has something to do with picturing our relationship with God, but what? Like, how does that work during foreplay? Like what, how does that, you know, that's what you're asking, okay? No one asked that until I said it, but now you're asking that. Okay, so let me talk about this. Marriage has always been a picture of Jesus's love towards us. It's a display of what our hearts deeply long for. It's always, sex has always pointed us to the, the deep need for not being alone, wanting to be, it was not good that Adam and Eve were alone, so God put them together for oneness, communion after the fall. It was a picture of our relationship with God and in Christ, the picture of his love for the church. So God who loves us and has chosen us and has rescued us, who has seen us at our worst, has himself got naked and vulnerable on the cross and he gave himself for us unconditionally. That's, that's the gospel. There's a picture of Christ and his love, the way the husband is to love his wife, the way Christ loves the church. That's why there's no marriage in the new heavens and new earth, that picture will be done because we'll have full relationship with God. So where does sex fit in sexuality and being all that fit? Well, we can look at creation next week and procreation and all that. What I wanna talk about more is the signpost. So here's what I'm saying to you. Sex is a longing and a desire within us. It's a desire for union pointing us to our desire for God. Okay, Freud, we all know Freud, maybe from school. He diagnoses the deep loneliness and pain within us as a deep longing for a parent. The Christian sees the deep longing and desire to unite with one who created us. So our sexuality, this longing connection and reunion, that long, longing for sex is, is a, an ultimate longing for our communion with God. Okay, Bruce Marshall in, in, the, in his novel, The World, the Flesh and Father Smith wrote this very provocative sentence. He writes, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The Bible teaches us that the ecstasy and joy of sex was invented by God to give us a foretaste of the intimacy and closure that we will experience when we know God face to face. So what is sex for? Sex is an analogy. It's a signpost of that. Now, let me show you this from the Bible. This is why in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is so serious about uniting to a prostitute, someone you're not married to. He says, don't you know that the two become one flesh? This is massively important. The biblical God-saturated view of sex and marriage and its covenant is that when you become one flesh, 
You don't just unite bodily. It's not just recreation. It's not just feeding an appetite. Paul rebukes that in this chapter when he says, quoting from the day, well, if you're hungry, then just eat. He's saying that's totally different when it comes to sex and sexuality. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, when the Bible talks about this word flesh, becoming flesh, it also talks about God's relationship with you. So when God says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh, what he's saying is I'm gonna invade every part of your, of your being. So Paul is saying sex is meant by God to be a full giving of one's entire self. Sex was God's invented way for you to give yourself to someone else so deeply that it results in personal closure personal transformation. This is who I can be with in full. As one writes, what he's saying is when you have sex outside of marriage, you're abusing and you're dishonoring and you're actually destroying this incredible person-shaping commitment mechanism of deep soul nurture and personal transformation. When a husband and wife gets totally vulnerable, they feel safe and they come into one another, they can't be more like the Trinity in that moment because there's nothing there that would make them feel, this is in God's original design, shame or anything, but they are one. Persons unite, personhoods, beings become one. Paul says, you take the spirit of God and unite that, bring into another prostitute. It's like Jesus is having sex with them. That's how provocative and hateful he hates and seize the purpose of sex. So sex was invented by God to point us to what one day will be, when marriage will be no more, okay? This is why in a theological sense, sex is glorious. It makes us feel powerful and connected and alive. So look right at me. When you meet Jesus face to face, when we enter into that relationship with him where there's complete fullness, I mean, I'm, you guys will never experience what this will be like. You, you've never felt, I don't think, on planet Earth, complete happiness and wholeness because of our sin. But when you experience that, when you know that kind of intimacy and what your God has done to come into your life and save you, when we know that kind of union and closure, finally never feeling ever our deep feeling of being alone, when we experience that closure with God and we know his absolute bliss in love, that will be absolute ecstasy and joy. That's what sex was meant to point to. Now, right away, this tells us something very practical. Namely, we have made it a lot less than that. But more, not more, similar, sex cannot and will not ever satisfy your heart. Your heart. The purpose of sex is not to bring you into a point of spiritual satisfaction. It's a signpost. In all those stories, they've made it something too big, not big enough, but way too smaller in the worldly sense. So, so again, like, are you thinking about that during foreplay if you're married? The answer is probably not, but why not? Look at me, we should. Here's why, without God, now this is gonna lead us to our second point, but you have to follow me on this because this is gonna go into the next few weeks. Without God, without sex being what it was meant to be an act of worship in, we will turn it into what we worship. And so many see sex as how they'll feel they're loved, 
Sex will give me peace. This will heal our marriage. This will make my boyfriend like me more. This will, whatever you're trying to heal, hoping to get identity, value, a sense of well-being, feeling from, if it's not done in the way God's intended it for, you will turn it into something it wasn't ever intended for and will never give you what you hope to get from it. Which leads us to the second thing, okay? So 10 bucks, remember this one. Sexuality in the way of Jesus, in the way of Jesus is an act of worship. Now, even if you're not a Christian, okay? If you're not a Christian, you're like, this is the coolest church service I've been to. Um, you don't, we believe, and you would say, you know, everyone lives for something that you have meaning and purpose. But, but if you're a Christian, look right at me. You don't put down your worship nature when you're having sex. In the act of sex, you're worshiping something. You're surrendered your hearts to something. You want to get something. Our sex and sexuality could be shaped by the worship of self. It, it could be the worship. It could be shaped by the worship of our partner, or of just appeasing our partner, or the worship of pleasure, peace, worth, wanting to feel love, whatever it is you get out of sex. And here's where it deforms us if it's not about God. Okay. And I borrow this. If sex is all about you, worshiping you, and quote, I want to rule my life and do whatever I want to do, it will never work as God intended. If sex is all about worshiping your partner, quote, I can't live without the love of this person, sex will never work as God intended. If sex is all about worshiping what you get out of sex, I can't live without this, what sex does for me, it, it will never work as God intended. So worship of anything other than God always ends in the worship of self and leads to deformation. The key sentence is it will never work as God intended. Sexual formation is not about, this is really, sexual formation is not about, in the way of Jesus, is not about repressing or releasing desires, but about redirecting them in a godly manner. We're not just asking, what are we doing? We're asking, who are we becoming in what we worship? But who are we becoming by what we give ourselves to? If you missed last week, really important. So that really speaks practically into masturbation. Okay? Is masturbation a sin? Is masturbation mentioned in the Bible? Okay? It's not mentioned in the Bible. I'm sure they did it in those days, but it's not mentioned in the Bible. But, but if that's what sex is, if sexual expression through orgasm, didn't think you'd hear that in church, should be an overflow of a desire for a spouse, not merely for a feeling or experience, if that's what it's meant to point to, then it's not God's will. Paul says, whatever we do, right, whether we eat or we drink, whatever we do, including all forms of sexual expression, we're to do all to the glory of God. So in God's good design, marital love is the only justified context for one to enjoy sexual craving for orgasm. Think about how your sexual life would change if you took the worship nature of your humanity serious. Like I want all of you to imagine, not all of you, the right just think of what difference it would make if you always connected sex to worship. Because if you look at pornography, 
and you connect your worship nature, what are you worshiping? What is it going to do? How is it going to deform? If you're married and you're like Aaron or you're like Heather or you're, you have your own version of how sexuality and sex is broken in your own life, think of what it would change in your sexual thoughts, desires, choices, and actions if you saw yourself as a worshiper. By the way, look right at me. If this is not your vision, that you don't believe sex is this entire giving of your whole personhood that points to your uniting with God, you will reduce sex to physicality or lust. The inevitable result is what one calls a focus on technique. Every magazine you see, every podcast you hear around good sex life is, is if it's not holistic and integrated and in, integrated and getting you in the way marriage was designed, you're going to reduce it to technique and performance. And if you do that, it's a fundamental breakdown of, of your intimacy. It will increase, it will decrease um, your formation in the way of Jesus. And look right at me, it will drive the porn industry. So if all you guys are about is technique, you're missing it. This is why there's so many sex studies, sex manuals, pornography does absolutely nothing to address the eternal loneliness, the deep source of pain and the true worship of God. So James, I thought this was a, supposed to be a sermon on helping us navigate culture, elephants. It is. Because here's the thing, when you're asked about sexuality or you're asked and talked about with a non-Christian friend or neighbor on these issues, you can ask a really good question. And you know what it is? You can ask this question. What do you think the purpose of sex is? Just ask them. Can I ask you a weird question? Sure. What do you think the purpose of sex is? That's a good question. Okay, number three. I don't even know how we're doing on time, but I'm just gonna do the whole sermon. If it's long, it's long. Okay, number three, 10 bucks. Sexuality in the way of Jesus. And this is where it gets black and white. Okay, if you're like, that's vague up here. I don't know how to bring that in all the time. Um, is, is chastity and singleness, abstinence, right? And faithfulness in marriage. The Bible could not be more clear on its topics of adultery, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Every time the Bible defines immorality, it defines it in these two ways. The Bible, now, now here's what's really key. We're gonna hit this next week with great clarity. The goal for sexuality is not, look right at me, heterosexuality. The goal for sexuality is not heterosexuality. The Bible speaks against heterosexual sins far more than it speaks into homosexuality. So the goal is not heterosexuality. The goal is holy sexuality. God's vision for this for sexuality embraces two paths, chastity in marriage and singleness, I mean, and faithfulness in marriage. From Genesis to Revelation, there's only two paths with God's standard for sexual expression. If you're single, be sexually abstinent while fleeing sexual desires. If you're married, be sexually and emotionally faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex while fleeing lustful desires. 
So instead of determining how we ought to live based on you know, patterns of our erotic desires, which we'll hit next week, because next week we're going to do creation, what happened to our sexuality in the fall. The Christian thinks not simply, how do I act to these desires, but what is holy? Christians believe even the ability not to engage in sex is actually a gift. Sex between a husband and wife is to be honored. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be cherished. It's, it's to be loved by teenagers. It's to be excited. You're excited about it if you're single. You're, that you know its purpose. You know where it's going. It, it bears repeating. A person can live a full, blessed, rich, useful, meaningful, God-glorifying life without ever having sex with anyone. Like Jesus, who was the most complete person who ever lived, he never entered into a romantic relationship. He didn't have sex. Neither did Paul, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. But if you're married, and this is a great gift, and we're not talking about that in this context, but let me give you a verse. Sex is a good thing. Proverbs says, rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a grateful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Okay, some of you guys are like, I, I should start doing the scripture memory thing because... <laughs> This is a good one. Number four, last one. Sexuality in the way of Jesus is a witness to the world. It's a witness to the world. One of the, one of the ways the early church won the empire, which they did. They won the empire over decades of persecution was three things. Number one, how they died forgiving their enemies. That blew the first century alive. Number two, they were, quote, financially promiscuous. They were so radical in their generosity that won, that won it. And number three, they were faithful in their sexuality. So here's a letter, first century, to, to Diognesis. It says this, Christians marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Value for human life. They have a common table, that's hospitality, but not a common bed, faithfulness in marriage. Sure, church, we need to reclaim a robust Christian vision of marriage that points us to the true story that we're all a part of, that we're all to bear witness to. Now, at this point in writing this sermon... You know, I was, I was excited. I was, I was, I'm still having the, like, what does that look like practically? I was resolved. But I was discouraged. I was discouraged. Oh, no, a discouraged pastor. Here's why. I, I don't do very well at keeping God central in my life. Like, I'm really good, sadly, at convincing myself that there are things I deserve or things I can't live without. I, I often find myself convincing myself that, you know, this, this news article or this show or this little glance or this whatever it is, it's not a big deal. Man, I don't know how to keep my heart from being fickle. 
I don't think I have the power to keep myself sexually holy. That can be discouraging. But I know it begins with the Spirit's power embracing God's intention for sex and sexuality. It begins with a love of God and a love of the Bible. But more importantly, here's what we must stand in. Our hope in the struggle for sexual purity and healing or, or any other victory over sin or even healing from the wounds that have been caused by horrific people that we, many of us carry is found not in our perfect submission to Christ as our master, but is found in his perfect submission to the will of the Father on our behalf. In our weakness and struggle, we do not have to be paralyzed by fear or hide. Right? The Bible teaches we can stand before a holy God broken as we are, and we can cry out for forgiveness, help, protection, rescue, mere white knuckle, legalistic set of rules, and all the efficient systems of accountability cannot deliver you from your sexual insanity. God has to do that. The Holy Spirit has to do that. We need the gospel. We need his power. What we need to love most in our sexuality is what sex points us to, Christ. Christ is our righteousness. We don't have to fear his rejection ever. Satan seeks to kill, destroy, because what he will do, Revelation says, he's the accuser of the saints night and day. He will accuse you and he will tell you, you're a failure. And he'll make guilt and shame feel like cancer. You do not have to fear because our standing before Christ righteous, all that kind of stuff leads us to show Satan Jesus. Oh, you're right. You know what? You're kind of right. I am a mess. You should meet this guy who actually crushed your face, Jesus. Because guess who I'm standing in right now? His righteousness. I'm clothed in him. His spirit's in me. So guess what? He who began a good work will bring it to completion. You, I will stumble. I will fight the flesh, the devil, and the world. But I will not not stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power you will get over your sexuality and healing will not be in just trying harder. It will be in you loving Jesus more than anything. If you can love Jesus more than sex, teenager, you'll win here. Sure, Jesus is with you. He's in you. He's for you. He, he, he will help you in the struggle of mastery. He fights on our behalf when we fail to have the sense or the willingness to fight. His fight begins when he transforms our hearts and I want you to tell him today, as we respond, that I want your vision for sexuality. Come to him today, surrender your sexuality to Jesus. And this is gonna be really hard for a lot of us. Some of us cannot do this, and it will not have power by the Spirit if you have not confessed 
your sin, if you have not confessed how your sexuality has been hurt, distorted, you cannot confess to your spouse, you need to confess. Confession is the first, similar to baptism in a symbolic sense, how you get saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Confession is how you get healing. Confession is how you actually have the gospel, not just up here, but in here. When you receive the forgiveness of your spouse, when you receive healing from the wounds of sexual sin and addiction, and even just talking about it, when you confess, he's he's there. Because Satan wants you to hide it. Satan wants you to clothe yourself in shame, but you're clothed in Christ. All of us are broken in our sexuality. None of us, if we were to all play your sexual life on the screen, none of us would be like, I think I nailed it. No, you wouldn't. So we all need Jesus, but we need this vision 